what is flow? It's an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it refers to any of those moments of rapt attention, total absorption. It's so focused on the task at hand, everything else just starts to melt away and disappear. Action awareness are going to emerge. Your sense of self, self-consciousness, the voice in your, cred, your, your, your inner critic, that's all going to quiet down. Bodily awareness even will, will sort of go away. Time is going to pass strangely. It'll slow down. You're going to freeze frame more frequently, get so sucked into what you're doing that like five hours go by in what feels like five seconds, right? So flow requires complete concentration on the task at hand. It requires the merger of action awareness, the diminishment of self, time dilation. And while that amplification and performance, we're not like, oh my God, my performance is amplified. What we feel like is, wow, I've got a sense of control. I can control things I can't normally control. I'm a writer. I can do things with my words that I can't normally do. I'm a skier. I can do things on my skis that I can't, right? I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Stephen Kotler. And Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author. He's an award-winning journalist and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He is one of the world's leading experts on human performance, and 10 of his 13 books have went on to become bestsellers, and his work has also been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes. Today's conversation is going to dive into his latest book, The Art of Impossible, where Kotler unveils the secret recipe to help you achieve your goals, overcome obstacles, and become your best self. As you will learn from today's episode, achieving the impossible isn't just about climbing Mount Everest or winning the Super Bowl. Those are more or less what he considers quote unquote big eyes and can't be accomplished without, without achieving many quote unquote little eyes along the way. Little eyes, in my own words, can best be described as smaller goals or challenges such as transforming your health, building a relationship, passing a big test, or starting a podcast. And Stephen will explain this in much more detail today. Our conversation also goes into the popular and enticing topic of flow. And we talk about what flow is and what flow isn't. Stephen shares why getting into flow is one of the most important things you can possibly do to learn faster, improve performance, and live life to your fullest potential. He talks about a recent obstacle that he has overcome in recent times and how it has impacted his life for the positive. We also discuss the science of motivation, what actually gets you motivated, and he also shares his thoughts on the current mental health epidemic what's caused it, and what the solution is, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Stephen Kotler to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Stephen Kotler, welcome to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Thanks, Doug. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with you as well. And I thoroughly enjoyed your latest book, The Art of Impossible. And what I liked about it, among many things, was this notion that there's these two eyes. There's the little eye, which is these essentially these these small wins that you accumulate over time that add up to the big eye. Because I think when people think of doing things that are impossible, so to speak, they think of climbing Mount Everest, they think of winning a Super Bowl, they think of winning a lottery, like literally things that are hyper rare to achieve in our society. But you explain it in a way where just achieving the impossible is essentially just adapting a growth mindset you know, becoming resilient, becoming really good at, at practicing grit and just growing over time to evolve as a better human being. And the one thing I wanted to, to ask you, I guess, to start to frame up the conversation is what are some little eyes recently during this last year, during these last few months that you've had to overcome yourself? How did you get through it? And how has it made you feel as we sit here and chat today? Wow, what a heavy, heavy way to open this door. Okay, so little context for your listeners. When we talk about capital I impossible, I've spent my career examining those moments in time in every domain you can imagine. When the impossible, that which has never been done and we believe is never going to be done, got done. And that's capital I impossible. Small I impossible 
is are those impossibles that the stuff we think is impossible for ourselves, right? The example I give in the book is I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. It was a working class, blue collar steel mill town in the 1970s when I was growing up and I wanted to be a writer. Now, I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you became a writer. I, there was no, there were few books. There was no internet. There was no one to ask. It was like, I woke up one morning and turned to my parents and said, mom, dad, when I grow up, I want to be an elf. No, 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 wait, a <laughs> hobbit. You know what I mean? Like for yeah, yeah, all yeah. we knew about how to do that. And so when I say small eye impossible, it's that which um, we believe is impossible for us. But usually what that means is there's not a very clear path at all between point A, where we are, and point B, where we want to get to. And statistically, not great odds of success. What are other small eye impossibles? Rising out of poverty, overcoming deep trauma, overcoming an addiction, getting paid doing what you love, becoming world-class at anything, right? Becoming a successful entrepreneur or artist and so forth. Those are small eye impossibles. I also want to point out, just because I think it's worth saying here before I answer your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we talk about peak human performance, we mean one thing, getting our biology to work for us rather than against us, mm. right? That's a, And that's a limited set, as you sort of pointed out in the opening, when you look at the biology of like, especially cognitive peak performance, which is where I focus my attention on the mental side of the equation, there's a bunch of motivation skills, motivation, grit, goal setting that get us into the game. There are a bunch of learning skills that allow us to continue to play, creativity skills that help us steer, especially if you're going after high, hard, impossible, I don't know how to get their goals, you need to steer. And flow at the back end, the state of optimal performance is how you turbo boost the results, usually beyond reasonable expectation and beyond your own limits, right? That's sort of the formula. We could talk about all the different components and the biology underneath and why it works this way and blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing that I want to point out after saying all that. If you're listening to this and you're like, dude, capital I impossible, small I impossible. Fuck. I just want, I want to get through Monday, man. Yeah. Can you help me like a little more productivity? Maybe like my kids drive me a little less crazy, you know, and here's the really cool news. And then I'll answer your question. It doesn't actually matter where you want to play. If you want Monday to be easier, well, you're going to utilize your biology. That's how Monday gets easier. If you're going, if you're going after small I impossible, that's it's the same biology capital I impossible it's all the same at whatever scale you want to play at so all that's I think it's applicable you know it's just worth pointing that out that like there's an entrance point into this particular conversation for anybody who's listening and I and I'd like to say that up front the what so you ask a funny question because I had more small I impossibles that got inadvertently like most of us right because of COVID first of all packed into the past year than ever. But the one I want to talk about is just the one that's kind of like most personal to me and, and closest to my heart is, so at the start of COVID, I had just launched a book and I was about to launch another Art of Impossible. And I should also point out that the book launch campaigns for both Faster and the Art of Impossible were immense. Art of Impossible is the biggest like book campaign anybody's seen, anybody rotted forever. Like, so in crazy schedule, and that was like before COVID happened. COVID happened, I, you know, my company was in just as much trouble as everybody else's. 70 people worked for me. I had to figure out how to how they keep their jobs and, you know, navigate, you know, through all that stuff. And to boot, I had been going, I had been aiming for April as my first vacation in nine years. Because I had I literally hadn't taken time off in nine years and I was beyond exhausted going into April. And all I wanted, I had just moved to Tahoe from my, where I used to live, and I was gonna ski for a month. Mm -hmm. And they shut down the resorts, COVID happened, I got COVID, and all this other stuff happened. And the way I chose, I found that the part that I couldn't deal with was the fact that skiing had been taken from me. And the real issue was I'm getting older. My window to progress as a skier is closing and there's a lot of shit I haven't done yet. Skiing is what I do. It's my laboratory for human performance. I learn something, I learn the neuroscience, I decode it and I take it into my writing and my skiing and I just see, can I get it to work? Can I figure out? And I know if it works for me, it's not a guarantee it's gonna work for other people, but I gotta play with it there. So skiing has been my laboratory and there's a bunch of stuff I'm, not, I can't yet do that. I want, I've been wanting to do since I was four years old. 
I chase professional athletes around mountains. This is a long time deep passion, right? And I've been aiming for this for a long time. I moved to Tahoe to get better access to gnarlier mountains and they shut the resorts down and I was not taking it well. I just was not taking it well. And one of the keys to resilience, as I'm sure you know, is you take, you, you look at the problem and you say, okay, how do I turn what is an absolute, like, you know, disaster to me emotionally, even though this goes into the ski resorts in the middle of a pandemic, doesn't sound like much to anybody else. To me, it was like, I really, both myself, my wife, we were all like, I don't know if Steven's going to be sane enough to survive all this, plus the extra work, plus the, you know, COVID, blah, blah, blah. So I started asking a simple question, will it make this okay? And I realized that if I could enter next ski season, a better skier, I could use this season to do something that I thought was impossible, which was learn how to ski park. I'm a big mountain skier. I've never skied park. It's a totally different set of skills. It's also an impossible. All the skills you need for ski park, motor acquisition patterns, that window closes before we're 20. Fast twitch muscle response, hypothetically, it's supposed to decline over time. Strength declines over time. I can keep going. So there's all this stuff that is supposed to be impossible for somebody who's 53 to learn at a ski park. And I literally, um, on top of like that challenge, I had a PTSD-driven aversion to blind jumps, which all punk park jumps are. So I literally, like, I had deep trauma here. Like, every advantage, every disadvantage going in, you could possibly think, plus a crazy schedule, which is why I mentioned it. So I was like, fuck, I am literally up against what any, every excuse you could hear from somebody my age for why they're not going to do something and, right, go after this kind of challenge. I'm, like, my schedule's nuts. I'm had long illnesses. I've broken 82 broken bone. I've got 82 prior broken, but like everything says you're not supposed to be able to do this. But I've been looking at the science of how do we grow old and stay rad, continue to perform at elite levels. And the science is really interesting. And as you know, the technology is advancing crazy. Lifespan is accelerating. And there's a bunch of really neat superpowers that come online as we age. We get more empathetic. We get more creative. We get more innovative. We have wider perspective taking and get more wisdom. These are like really cool skills in the workplace and for everybody, provided you can counteract the other tendencies, which is decrepitude and risk aversion, which is the biggest problem. It blocks creativity. It blocks empathy. It closes openness to experience and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, can you use the, can you do the impossible inside of park skiing? And can you see if like this way that I've, I thought I figured out a way to run an experiment, to learn how to do this incredibly dangerous thing safely in my fifties. And I, I like, so I've been living this experiment. I've skied 70 days this year. I've brought in like serious professional park skiers to kind of judge my progress and blah, blah, blah. And so I've been running a giant experiment. I've had a concussion. I've had a fractured shoulder. I've had a torn rotator cuff. I've got a torn hip flexor. I've done all the challenges. And I can tell you I'm about halfway through the experiment so far. And I came in with an impossible goal list. Like I want to ski these lines. I want to learn these tricks. And it was, the question was, could you get from basically like beginner to intermediate and intermediate is the point at which it stops getting as dangerous, right? You sort of know what to do and you don't fall as much, blah, blah. Could I do it in a year safely at 53 doing all these things that people, and the, the short, the early results are yes. Like, and it's interesting because I'm applying a bunch of new ideas and embodied cognition and neural patterning and neural learning stuff. That's really at the cutting edge of this field stuff I can't write a book like Art of Impossible about because it's not yet true, right? So I, I was like, but I can run a year-long experiment with myself as the guinea pig and see what's true, at least for me. And so that's what I've been doing. And it's, I, I will say that like I've accomplished more small-eye impossibles in one year than I've ever done before in my life in business, in, as an artist, and as an athlete, and actually probably as a husband and a person, wow. I will say. I've never actually seen this much sort of growth in one year. And I really think, even though park skiing is this like thing that kids do, nobody takes it seriously. Like, like people, the other thing that people don't realize is that park skiing is one of the coolest laboratories for the upper limits of human performance. And what's going on there is like, if you're actually interested in, in people like doing the impossible on a regular basis, park skiing is seeing progress, like almost nothing else in sport. 
And until you know what it is and what you're looking at, it looks, um, to quote a former extreme skier, Scott Schmidt, it looks like flippy, flippy, spin, spin. And it looks amazing and cool, but you have no idea what you're looking at and you don't know what it is. So that's what I've been working on. It's a long answer to your question, but I thought it was a cool question. By the way, you're the very first this is the very first time I've talked about any of this out loud. So I thought it was a cool question. Yeah. And uh, you, this is the first time I've talked about this book in public with anybody, but thought I would answer your question with the truth. That's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, in your book, it was interesting. You get into a little bit of your backstory and your passion for a lot of this, like towards the end of the book, which was a little rare, like a little unique, like typically when people are writing a book like that, they, they share a bit of their journey at the beginning. So I was like, let's take it back a little bit and say, okay, like what are some of these quote unquote impossible tasks that you've had to achieve over this last year or so, or last few months that now have made you a better person? Because I think there's probably a lot of crossover in, in that, in your ability to ski better, like you said, has made you a better husband. So here, this is interesting. This is, I wish this was my research. It's Adam Grant's research. Okay. And he was talking about it in the New York times two days ago, which is why I know about it. So by choosing to do what I did, I made a choice for, I made like a lot of high, I had massive access to flow, right? My training for the season required a lot of flow stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of new research that shows that asks the question who thrived after COVID, right? Who got their ass kicked who came out thriving and they looked at a lot of factors. They looked at optimism. They looked at well-being, blah, blah, blah. Turns out, this is not surprising because we see the same thing with grit studies, but it turns out the largest in- indicator that you did not languish under COVID and you're now flourishing post-COVID is how much flow you got in the early days of COVID mm. um, and how much access you had to high-flow activities during the pandemic, which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Because I feel like just how you describe flow in the book, when you're in flow, you pretty much short circuit your way to success. Your memory improves, your performance improves, your ability to to learn improves. Like everything pretty much gets expedited and more efficient when you're in flow. Am I correct? And yeah, and it's, it's also, I mean, so we could talk about why it's such a big cog- suite of abilities, but so just cognitive side, motivation, grit, productivity, all massively increased. So do learning rates, creativity, creative problem solving is amplified as well. All the well-being stats, except for happiness. Like how do you feel right here, right now? It's independent, sort of related, but it, there's two other levels of happiness, like well-being and overall life satisfaction that flows a big part of. That doesn't move, but well-being, life satisfaction, purpose, passion, meaning, the, all those things are directly correlated to flow. But equally important, because we talked about being a good husband and being a good person. You've mentioned that a couple of times. Flow amplifies collaboration, cooperation, empathy, and basically perspective taking and environmental awareness. So our ability to see things from other people's perspectives and our ability to see and notice details in the world around us. All of that stuff gets increased. So flow over time if you're sort of doing, you have to sort of do the human development work. Like it doesn't flow is not like, it's like techno optimism. Technology alone is not going to solve our problems. Flow alone is not going to solve your problems. You still have to do a bunch of work along with the flow to sustain it. But it seems like it moves us really far, really fast on a lot of kind of the foundational, how do you be a good person? And we're seeing this. So at the Flow Research Collective, where we, you know, we study this stuff, the neurobiology of, of, of flow, and then use what we learn to train people. We've been training police forces a lot lately because of the with everything going on on the social justice front cops want empathy they want Mm. collaboration they want cooperation they want group flow skills for neighborhood policing and things like that so we've teamed up with an organization called blue courage that works with law enforcement organizations all over the country and we've been you know working with the police forces those reasons too so i think there's a lot i mean like it's a full suite and on the by the way just on the physical side you get strength, stamina, endurance, and uh, greater sensitivity or gr- less sensitivity to pain. Right. Um, all of those things and fast twitch muscle response. That's amazing. And so I'm sure there's people that are listening to this or if they're watching this, they're, they're wondering, well, how do I get into flow? Because to me, you know, when you hear the word flow, it's, it's been thrown around a lot over the years. I know you get into the science of flow, which is why I was really excited to talk to you. And, and typically when I think of flow, things are easygoing, they're efficient, 
like it's like more like Zen, like you don't want to fight. You just kind of want to flow through things. So in your experience through the years and making this your profession, like what does it mean to be in flow and how can somebody get there? We will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second. But first wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by athletic greens. I cannot tell you how much better I feel, how much better I function and work when I take this product. It goes into my daily smoothie along with various other superfoods every single day. And ever since I started taking it, I got to say that I have noticed improvements in my digestion. I've noticed improvements in my energy and even in my immune system. But like many of you, I am on the go so much between interviews, personal training clients, and the podcast that I want to maximize my health in the most efficient way. This is where Athletic Greens helps me tremendously. It is a life-changing, life-changing superfood powder, and each serving contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet and keep you feeling your best. Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system with everything going on in the world right now. So they are offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D, which many people are deficient in, yet is crucial for immune system support. And they are also giving away five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. So you'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. So simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Doug Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Doug and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Now back to the show. Okay. I'm going to answer those questions. And then I want you to remind me to tell you why what you just said is really problematic for somebody who wants to get into flow. But I got to answer. I got to come okay. back to it and I'll forget. But you came in from an interesting way and it's actually a flow blocker. You're that very like, oh, I'm going to go out and go mountain biking. It's going to be flowy. That very idea will block flow for a very peculiar, weird reason that we can come back to. So anyways, what do we mean by flow? What is it? What's the definition? How do we get more of it? Flow, scientifically, the science of flow, by the way, is very old like dates back to the 1870s. So some of the earliest experiments in experimental psychology and what became cognitive neuroscience 50 years later were run on flow. Been extremely well studied. The field of flow research at this point is probably a thousand researchers thick. A lot of people work on it. There's a ton of papers. There's a ton of data. There's a ton of information. What is flow? is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it refers to any of those moments of rapt attention, total absorption. It's so focused on the task at hand, everything else just starts to melt away and disappear. Action awareness are going to emerge. Your sense of self, self-consciousness, the voice in your, cred, your, your, your inner critic, that's all going to quiet down. Bodily awareness even will, will sort of go away. Time is going to pass strangely. It'll slow down. You're going to freeze frame. Maybe you've been in a car crash. More frequently get so sucked into what you're doing that like five hours go by in what feels like five seconds, right? And it, it speeds up. And throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical, as we've talked about already, go through the roof. So that's how you think about flow. When psychologists, they want to measure flow. Okay, hey, man, are you in flow, Doug? What are we going to do? Right. Well, what we're going to do is say, hey, the state has six core, big word here, phenomenological characteristics. What that means is this is how this experience makes us feel, right? And so what do we know? Flow requires complete concentration on the task at hand. It requires the merger of action awareness, the diminishment of self, time dilation. And while that amplification and performance, we don't feel, we don't like, we're not like, oh my God, my performance is amplified. What we feel like is, wow, I've got a sense of control. I can control things I can't normally control. I'm a writer. I can do things with my words that I can't normally do. I'm a skier. I can do things on my skis that I can't, right? Oh, wow. And then the experience is, I talked about meaning and purpose and those things. And the reason why is flow is what they call autotelic. That's what they're measuring. But autotelic means in the end in itself, it means the experience is so enjoyable, so pleasurable, so rewarding that we will go really far out of our way to get more of it, right? So once an experience starts producing flow, we don't need grit. We just will keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Earlier, I talked about, you know, I've got a fractured shoulder and a concussion, all these things. And you would think, oh my God, Stephen, why would you stop? Why don't you just stop? The reason I won't stop is because 
whatever, that for those problems are so much smaller compared to the reward of, oh my God, I get to go ski and it drops me into flow. That's what autotelic means. So that's what they measure. So how much do these six things, and you can have micro flow where they show up and they're quiet, right? And this is like you're at work, you sit down to write a quick email to your boss and it becomes an essay, right? On truth in the workplace or whatever. And it's great writing and it takes two hours and you didn't even notice. And maybe your sense of self and self-consciousness didn't diminish and you didn't become one with everything. But bodily awareness is gone. And when you pop back into your head, you're like, oh, my God, I got to go to the bathroom and you run to the toilet. Right. That's really common. Other end, macro flow. This is where time dilation, your sense of self totally disappears. You can have out of body experiences or feel one with everything. And we understand the biology underneath all that. But that's the other end. That's macro flow. Neurobiologically, there's a ton going on in flow. We like there's changes in brain waves and there's changes in neurochemistry and neural anatomy. And the networks of the brain are shifted, and it's you know, and, and there are physiological signs. So you breathe a certain way in flow, it appears your heart does a certain thing in heart rate, heart rate variability. And it's gotten to the point that there's now appears to be more research needed. A microfacial expression signature for flow, your frown muscles are paralyzed or deactivated somewhat in flow and your smile muscles are hyperactive. So all those things are how neurobiologically the work I do, this is what we measure, this is how we define flow overall. What we've learned because of all this science is the answer to your question, which is how does flow work in the brain and how do we get more of it? And what we've learned is big picture flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 22 known flow triggers. There's probably way more, but that's what we know right now. And they all sort of do the same thing. They do it in different ways, but they do the same thing. Flow follows focus. It's the first rule of flow, right? If you're, all your attention has to be focused on the task at hand, completely engrossed in what you're doing. So what do these triggers do? In various ways, they drive attention into the present moment and onto the task at hand. So there are two varieties of flow, individual flow, me in a flow state, or you in a flow state. And then there's shared collective versions of flow, right? This could be me or you, me and you together having a great conversation that's interpersonal flow or you take it to the next level up. It could be a SEAL team performing together or a fourth quarter comeback in football or a great brainstorming session at a, a company, right? This is a team, a group performing at their best. And then finally, there's group flow at huge scales, communitas, when you get at a rock concert where you merge with the band and everybody's clapping in rhythm in the same places, right? So there are 10 triggers that are known for the group flow side. There are 12 triggers on the individual side. They all drive attention into the present moment. And if you want more flow, these are your toolkits. So some of them are really obvious. I'm only going to talk about a handful of them. There's a long book about, you know, how to deploy all of them. We can come back to that. But like some of them are really obvious. So novelty, risk, whenever we encounter something new, we know this, right? We automatically start paying attention to that, right? We get little squirts of dopamine, which drive focus and create excitement. We, oh, cool, what's this new thing? Curiosity is another flow trigger because it gives you the same dopamine you get from novelty plus a little norepinephrine, which is even more excitement, drives a little more focus, right? So what does that mean in the real world? How would you use novelty as a flow trigger to your advantage? I'll give you a simple example. Uh, for my life. Actually, let me tell you one other flow trigger that'll help here. Pattern recognition. Creativity is called the flow trigger. It means that when you link ideas together, we all know this, you get uh, a little squirt of dopamine. So you've ever done a crossword puzzle Sudoku, you get an answer, right? That little rush of pleasure, that's dopamine. It's a focusing chemical, it's a reward chemical, drives excitement and attention. And it also drives pattern recognition. So when it's in our system, we find faster connections between other ideas. This is why creative ideas spiral, right? One leads to the next, leads to the next. You have that first, or you're doing a crossword puzzle. You rarely get one answer in a row. You get like two or three at once because dopamine drives focus into the moment and enhances pattern recognition. So when you link ideas together, you get more dopamine and that can drive flow. So using those two triggers, I have to, as you can see behind me, read a shit ton of neuroscience textbooks for my job. Now, as you might imagine, these are the most exciting, thrilling, scintillating books in the history of the universe. And from page one, word one, you just 
you know, you just can't stop reading because it's the most fun you've ever had not, right? right? So, but also learning rates skyrocket in flow. So I want to be in flow when I'm reading the neuroscience because I'm going to learn it faster, right? Really important. And I'm going to enjoy it more. So what do I do? If it's really not so heavy, I'll go to a coffee shop outside my neighborhood because just the novelty of the new neighborhood and, you know, the new sites, right, is enough to start producing a little bit of dopamine. And when I'm reading the neuroscience, now I read a lot of neuroscience, so this stuff connects to stuff that I care about fairly easily. Usually, a couple pages in, I find an idea where I'm like, oh, wow, this really connects to this flow thing I've been working on. And boom, what do I get? A little more dopamine. And now I'm moving much closer and much faster towards flow. So if I really need to learn a bunch of hard shit, I rent a hotel room with a balcony that looks onto a really amazing natural vista that also involves complexity. So complexity is overwhelming nature. When we look up at the night sky and have to like look, realize you're looking back in time, you look at the Grand Canyon and you realize, oh my God, you know, that millions of years, or I look at mountains and I have that reaction because I spent a lot of time in mountains and I like the geology of how mountains form is really fascinating to me. So I look at mountains and I go, oh my God, I'm looking at billions a year, you know, that kind of experience. Um, that's complexity, another flow trigger. So, and I get more dopamine from it. So this is like, and the thing I want to point out, because everybody's probably figured out this out by now, when I talk about flow triggers and everything else I talk about, around this subject is going to be more of the same two things that are worth pointing out. I don't talk about technologies and I don't talk about substances. Everything that I talk about is physiology or psychology because they're reliable, they're repeatable and they work in every environment and they work for anyone. And I will tell you, you know, when I'm being hyper dramatic and I want to make this point, I'm like back when I was a journalist, I was shot at on five separate occasions. And when somebody is shooting at you, you cannot be like, excuse me, sir, would you put down the AK while I, <laughs> you know, microdose with LSD to enhance my creativity so I can dodge your bullets? Or let me use this brainwave entrainment device to like get myself, I mean, right? Or in a, in a much more familiar situation, less dramatic, when the boss says, hey, get in here, I need that presentation now. Or when your wife or husband says, hey, honey, can you come in here for a minute? Can I talk to you? That this moment is a time when you really want to be performing at your absolute best because right. it matters. You can't reach for a substance and you can't reach for a technology. You need something reliable, repeatable, going to work every situation, every time, thus physiology and psychology. That said, the other limit on this particular approach is it just ain't sexy. Right. Nothing, nothing we're talking about here is if you go into a bar on a Friday night and talk about it, it's not going to get you laid. It just, it is, it isn't. It's not like, oh, dude, I'm using novelty to trigger flow. Check it out, right? Like right. in comparison to like brainwave entrainment, holotropic breath work, psychedelic journeying or whatever the hell you're into, this stuff is not sexy. It just isn't. And so people in the modern world, especially they mistake not sexy for not useful, mm. right? And because we live in a very sexy, high-tech world, but you don't want to depend on those things for peak performance. You want to depend on evolutionary biology, stuff that is millions of years old and works for everyone in every situation. So that's how I think about these triggers, right? And it's not how most people think about peak performance, but it turns out, I think, to be A, the best way forward and be the most reliable in every situation. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and I like how you put that in, in the sense that it just seems that that flow is the foundation for for achieving the impossible, right? But I would say beneath that, there's even a bigger foundation, which requires motivation, purpose, passion, grit, skills, goal setting um, that I definitely want to get into because I, I want to say, like I love how you got into the science of motivation in the book, which there's a lot of people that talk about, yeah, you need to read books, you need to develop new skills. Like that I think is is probably more known, I think. But I think the way you talked about passion and purpose, especially was fascinating because there's a lot of rhetoric now that says you are your purpose. You develop your purpose over time and you say, oh, I'm going to show you based on some self-discovery and getting really internal how to see things you're passionate about and cultivate some sense of meaning and purpose behind that. 
But before we get into like, how does somebody do that and get motivated? I want you to finish your point about how, what I said about flow ah, yeah, to yeah, throw yeah. people okay. off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. I have spent the past uh, couple years working on what goes on in the brain at a neural dynamic level. So networks during flow state onset. And we've specifically sort of asked a question like, Hey, you're driving a motorcycle down the freeway and you get cut off by a car. Two possible outcomes. There's a bunch of shit that could happen, but here's two common outcomes. You swerve, it goes awesome. The swerve goes perfectly and you drop into flow and you're fucking whiz banging down the freeway happy as a clam. Or it goes badly. Same experience, same swerve, just, oh my God, this is so scary. It's so terrifying. You drive down the freeway and good high chance you've got PTSD. These are very common outcomes in action sports and military scenarios and a lot of stuff. There's this back and forth between these two very profoundly different state, traumatic stress and flow. And so one, we started asking the question, what goes on in the brain that differentiates? How do you, like, how in one second, right, or two seconds, can you have one experience or the other and go in a totally different direction and it can alter the course of your life in a really big way? We started to ask that question. One of the things we discovered about flow is, and this appears to be true at any scale, and it maps onto a l- old research by Herb Benson that I talk about in the Art Impossible about the flow cycle and how there's always a f- struggle phase at the front end of a flow state when you're loading the brain with information and it's your chunking patterns and your skill acquisition, whatever. What we discovered is that at the microscopic level, really quickly, you have to trigger the fight response to drop into flow. So in any situation, even if you're out for a flowy bike ride, right? Like that's the goal. You're gonna to drop into flow. You're gonna to have to have a moment where you're like, the trail gets steeper and something you're like, oh dude, I gotta, I'm here. I came to play and you gotta dive into it and really, right? So even if it's for a half a second, you have to trigger that fight response. And if you are out there seeking a flowy bike ride or a flowy riding session or a flowy meeting that you're going to run, it's not, it doesn't, the neurobiology doesn't work that way. And so you're literally going to keep yourself like you're going to try to aim for emotionally calm and peaceful. And what you actually need is super hyper aggressive for a second. And it's a very different thing. And so that's obviously a lot more work needs to be done on this, but that's what we seem to be finding. So my understanding is flow more or less when challenge meets skill. Like you've developed the skills, you've developed the passion, you've developed the purpose, you've developed the grit, and then the challenge or whatever you're trying to achieve is even with that so that it's not like you... So, yeah, so you're talking about another foundational flow trigger, what is known um, as the challenge skills ratio, or actually, if you speak physiology, this is the Erb's Dobson curve. Mm. But uh, in fact, that this with the discovery of the Erb's Dobson curve, the first sign of it was the very first experiment run on flow in 1871, but it was actually run on beer, but don't, it's a long story. It's a long story. It's It's funny though. So my point is that Flow follows focus. We pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of that task slightly exceeds our skill set. Mm. So you want to stretch, but not snap, right? right. I put it emotionally, not on, but near the midpoint between boredom and anxiety. Boredom, not enough stimulation here. I can't pay attention. I don't care. Anxiety, whoa, way too much. In between is what's known as the flow channel. It is this sweet spot. So that changes over time, right? It, it's a moving target. It's not a fixed target, but how, like how, and there's different, you know, organizations have gone after this. Toyota implemented Kaizen. Their phenomenal management philosophy was based on flow psychology and the challenge skills balance, among other flow triggers. So we see, you know, there's stuff like that in my own life. I'll give you a simple example. When I start a book, my goal is to write 500 words a day. Why 500 words? Because I can write 350 easy. 350 is easy. When you go 500, you have to transition from one idea to the next, and it's harder. And it's always hard. It's never like I've been doing this for a long time. It's always hard. So 500 words at the start of a book where I really don't know where I'm going, that's actually a stretch. I'm uncomfortable. I'm outside my comfort zone. I'm struggling a little bit. That's going to happen. Middle of the book, 750 words. I sort of know what I'm doing, it's, and I'm a little faster. And I, you know what I mean? End of the book, 1,200 words. 
So it's a moving target and I adjust it over time. But every day when I sit down to write, I have a goal that sits inside my challenge skills sweet spot. And by the way, if I get into the writing and I get to 500 words really easily, I will, or I get to let's say 425, I will say, oh, this was, this was, I didn't push hard enough. Let's boot it to 600 words today. Mm -hmm. So I will change it in the real time because I'm continuously aiming so I can stretch but not snap because that's where focus is the most amplified and that's where I'm going to get the best results. Mm. And the the point to take this one step further back to your small I, where we started, small I, capital I. If you're interested in small I impossible or capital I impossible, so the research basically says what is the if there's if you want to put a number on the ratio between challenge and skills, it seems to work in most cases. It's roughly four percent. If the challenge is four percent greater than your skill level, you're in the right spot. Four or five percent, like right in there. And that number, it's hard to test, but it it, it seems to hold up over time. I it's not law, but it's just like it's a very good code, sort of metaphor to aim for, and. 4% is tricky for somebody who's shy, meek, timid, because you're outside your comfort zone, right? You're, you're using your skills to the utmost, and it's hard for peak performers, top achievers, type A types. It's hard because they're interested in tackling much bigger challenges, and they'll take on, you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I have a course called Flow for Writers, where we I train a lot of people to write, and it's really funny. You talk to, I train hundreds of thought leaders who have like so many of the books that are out that you guys have been reading and whatever I've trained the guys on how to write those books. So I've seen it from a lot of different angles. I worked with your friend Rich a lot on, on this project. Anyways, a lot of these dudes come in and they're like, Oh yeah, I'm going to block two months. I'm going to write my whole book. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like, do you know what it takes to write a book? Let's talk about this. But so what I have to say is those high heart goals aren't bad. They boost motivation kind of automatically, but you have to chunk it down so that the shit you're doing today is right inside that challenge skill sweet spot. Otherwise, it's going to block flow. And flow is going to maximize creativity and learning and productivity and blah, blah, blah. So you want, you know, you want to be working in flow. So that's the challenge skill sweet spot. And so for you, for instance, like writing your next book might be a little I, but for a lot of people listening to this, it's probably a big I. And there's a lot of people, I think maybe right now, if they're listening to this, maybe they're feeling like they're just not motivated or they have been motivated and then they fell off because they just, they just weren't disciplined or they didn't achieve goals or they didn't develop grit. So I want to kind of unpack a little bit, the science of motivation to at least help get people started. Like how does pe- how does somebody who's not motivated? Yeah, let's, be- let's do it fast because yes. there's a lot there. So, but I'll, I'm going to try to blaze through and I'll give you guys some resources on the back end that are free that, that anybody can use where like this stuff has been, there's more on this and, and anybody can go there. So when we talk about motivation, motivation is a catch-all term right? It means extrinsic motivation, stuff in the real world, money, sex, fame, that we will work hard to get. Intrinsic motivation, internal motivators, and there are five major ones, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Goal setting, three tiers of goal setting that that need to be set up. And finally, six levels of grid on the back end. That sounds like a smorgasbord of shit. And on a certain level it is, but here's the cool news. So when we really talk with motivation, that's where we start. And you, that's where you want to start. And you've got to start with the extrinsic motivation. The, so the data is really clear. If you're interested in any kind of peak performance, you have to make enough money to be able to pay your bills and have a little left over for kind of recreational activity. If you are worried about where's my rent coming from, how do I feed my family, those kinds of things, you have to solve that problem first. A lot of peak performance is it's closed off because that problem creates so much anxiety. The challenge skills sweet spot is the master switch for a lot of performance. If there's too much anxiety in the system, because, oh my God, I can't pay my bills, right? How do you become, how do you drop into flow as a writer if you're like, oh my God, I got to write this article as fast as possible so I can write another one? If that's the situation you're in, you got to solve the money problem first. Once you've solved the money problem, Intrinsic motivation is your friend. And as I said, there's five big motivators. And what's cool about this is the system is designed to work in a certain order, in a certain way, and 
This is what most people don't sort of know because terms like passion and purpose get mystified. They're everywhere in the modern world and they're everything in the modern world and people want them to be a lot more than they are biologically. Curiosity is our basic motivator. Why? Because it gives us focus for free. When we're curious about something, we pay attention to it without having to burn a lot of energy and focus is the largest draw on our cognitive energy load. And our brain is a huge energy hog. So first rule of performance is conserve energy, conserve energy, conserve energy. Anytime you get anything for free, it's a huge deal. Curiosity gives you focus for free. If you can find the intersection of multiple curiosities, play there for a while, start to accumulate some little wins there, not even small eye wins, just tiny wins, little win, little win, little win, little win. This is the seed cardinal of passion. This is how you build passion, literally biologically. Passion is the intersection of multiple, multiple curiosities coupled to a bunch of specific kinds of wins. Purpose is the thing that creates passion, right? The intersection coupled to a cause greater than yourself, something outside yourself. And that's how you cultivate purpose. Once you have purpose, what does the system want? It wants the freedom to pursue that purpose. It wants autonomy. And we now know how much exact autonomy we need to start really getting that motivator working for us. And finally, what do you need next? Mastery, the skills to pursue that well. Mastery is all about the challenge skills balance, right? It's about pushing a little harder today, pushing a little harder tomorrow, walking up the challenge skills ladder day after day after day after day. And once you have all those things, the system says, okay, great. I'm motivated. Where am I going? Goals are where you're going. And you need a mission level goals for your life. This is what I want to accomplish over the course of my life. High, hard goals. These are the sub steps. They point towards your mission goals, which are aligned with your passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery, blah, 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 and so forth down to your clear goals, your daily action plans, the steps you're going to take today. That's where you, that's the order and that's how you start. And that's how you basically amplify motivation. In other words, if you want more motivation, you have to align your intrinsic motivators, point them in the same direction, then add these three, because that's how the system is designed to work. And if you get the system working the way it's designed to work, you get a lot farther, a lot faster with a lot less fuss. You don't need grit. If you get all five of those things pointing in the same direction, much in the same way that the challenge skills balance, which underpins mastery is a flow trigger, curiosity is a flow trigger, passion is a flow trigger, purpose is a flow trigger, so is autonomy. So you get a ton more flow. Once an experience starts producing flow, it's autotelic. We go out of our way to do it over and over and over again. We get a lot of the grit skills for free. And once that starts happening, then you want to start training grit. Because if you're trying to train grit without motivation and without flow, it sucks. And you can't sustain it over time. And you'll never do it. And you'll end up, and this is the point I was making, back to where you started with, oh, dude, I just can't get motivated. I'm not gritty. I don't have any of this, right? That's because you're, you're doing it in the wrong order and you're doing it wrong. And it's probably just grit, right? All you're doing all day long is, oh, this sucks. And I got to be gritty. I got to be grittier and I got to be grittier. And it doesn't, nobody can do that. You cannot sustain over that over time. We, we know where that leads. It leads to burnout, right? Which is at epidemic levels in our society and is an actual, you know, psychological condition that makes you less productive, less creative, less able to learn, unable to control your life, unable to control your happiness and well-being. So, you know, there's, there's the downside is doing it wrong. The upside is, oh my God, look what's possible. I love that. And I love how you broke that down like a good bit of your oh, book. Oh, yeah. So passionrecipe.com, www.passionrecipe.com for all your listeners. That first chunk of how do you turn curiosity into passion, passion into purpose, we just turned it into a free kind of, you know, learning-based workbook diagnostic. Anybody can go there. We break that all down very slowly. We're giving it away for free. So that's available to anybody. You don't have to buy the book. Hmm. Passionrecipe.com. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing because the way you broke it down in the book was something that's applicable to anyone to be able to become more passionate, to find purpose, to find meaning, to be able to become more motivated over time. This is the big deal about the science. And this is like, this is what, like, 
we know about all the like there's great books on individual parts of this picture right there are really good i wrote a great book, couple of great books on flow there are great books on focus and grit and goal like what's new what happened what what this really the story underneath the story and art of impossible is over the past five six years we've started to feel like figure out oh from a neurobiological level these things are all related and there's a system and there's an order and that's what's really new here is the sort of the big picture and how it works together, which is, I think, why we haven't sort of like why we've been fighting so much with to, to go at Because if you go at it piecemeal, it's really hard. It's hard to win the war. Certain right. extraordinary people might be able to pull it off. But as a general for most of us, it's really difficult. But if you start getting your biology to work for you rather than against you, if, you, if you're motivated and you don't need grit, if you've got flow and you, you know, those sorts of things, the biology is now working for you and you're just going so much farther faster. Mm. I love that. And I, and I think people are going to get a lot out of this episode because you broke down the science in depth on flow, on, you know, on grit, on motivation and just being able to achieve things that you never thought you could. Cause there's a lot of people that are struggling right now. I mean, mental health, you know, problems are, are up addictions up so, suicides yeah, let me, up let me actually let me actually we've got a little bit of time yeah. together and let's take that to address this because yes. here's the other side of this coin because this is really interesting and nobody talks about this but we've been talking a lot about hey the system is designed to work a certain way you go farther faster so as you just pointed out anxiety and depression are at epidemic levels i mean like epidemic one out of 10 adults is going to be anxious or depressed and seek help this year it's the largest strain on public health coffers and we suck at solving this problem how do we know somebody kills themselves once every 12 seconds that's insane that's insane suicide rates are like off the charts and it's all ages kids are killing themselves at record rates and etc cetera, etc cetera. so we've got a massive problem and here's what's funny if you look what are the causes of anxiety and depression there are eight known causes of anxiety and depression. Two of them get the most attention and they're actually the smallest factors in the equation. The two that get the most attention are genetics. My DNA is screwed up and I can't produce the serotonin I need, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, when you look at the data, that's never true. Genetics are always, at most, 50% of the equation. Your early childhood experience and how you're living your life are the other 50% of that equation. The other one is trauma. Oh, this terrible thing happened to me and I can't get past it and I'm anxious and I'm depressed and I'm terrified for the future. And I'm not saying that's not real. But what the data shows is 95% of the time, trauma leads to post-traumatic growth, mm -hmm. right? I got my ass kicked and then I got stronger because of it. 5% of the time, 10%, like it leads to stress and, and post-traumatic stress disorder. But the vast majority of the time, that's not the case. We get our ass kicked, we recover, and we're better for it, right? I spent three years in bed with Lyme disease. You battled addiction. Are we stronger, better people because of these? Of course, all my superpowers, or a lot of my superpowers were unlocked by the fact that I spent three years in bed with a deep chronic illness and had to solve that puzzle for myself. Same thing on your end, I'm quite sure. My point is that's what trauma normally does to us. So what are the other six major causes of depression? Well, number one cause of depression, lack of meaningful work. What do we actually mean by meaningful work? What does that actually mean scientifically when we translate it? Well, at the psychological level, it means work that I'm not curious about, that I'm not passionate about, that's not aligned with my purpose or my strengths, that I don't have the freedom or autonomy to pursue in the way I would like to. And by the way, it doesn't afford me the opportunity for mastery of any of the skills that I'm interested in mastering that will help me achieve my passion and purpose. That's what, and by the way, it's work that doesn't produce flow. That's what we mean by lack of meaningful work, lack of meaningful values. Number one, two, call, number two cause, it means that my life is not aligned with my passion, my purpose, and it doesn't produce flow and, you know, lacks empathy and, you know, all those other things. On and on down the charts, they're all the other side of this equation. The system was designed to work a certain way. We get it working a certain way. We get spectacular results. If we don't use the system the way it's been designed to use, you get horrific results. 
we are seeing an epidemic of this stuff in the world because we're not using the system, our biology, the way it was designed to be used. That's like the data is really overwhelming. It's, it's really clear on this. And this should surprise no one. Right. Yeah. You can use a vacuum cleaner, a system that's designed to suck in dirt, to hammer in a nail. Like it's going to be effective, but you're going to break the vacuum sooner or later. Right. That's essentially what we've been trying to do with our biology. And the results are epidemics of anxiety and depression made worse by COVID, made worse by a frightening, accelerating rate of technological development, made worse by a handful of other you know, things that make us feel very uncertain about the future and blah, blah, blah. So it's interesting. We have the problems are coming to a head in a visible well, but the good news is so is the science, right? We have the solutions. This is not, this is no longer the best kept secret in, in neuroscience or anything else. This is, you know, sort of public knowledge and, and our impossible is a summarization of what a huge field has been working on for 10 years. And I think that's definitely a great place for us to kind of wrap up our conversation because I think it's going to just shed light on what people could actually do to improve their mental health is is to get into flow and to find themselves and to find meaning and, and purpose and what they're passionate about and and cultivate some sense of accomplishment within themselves by setting and achieving goals and developing things like grit and resiliency and, and being creative to help themselves grow over time. Because you're right, I feel like now what's happened is to solve depression. It's like technology or drugs or this, that, and the other. And like that. I'll, I'll end with our- well, I'll, yeah. I'll end with one one quick quick thing that sort of summarizes everything you're saying, and it just popped in my mind. So I have I've for years, twenty years. It's the journalist in me. I like I get interested in a question. I just ask everybody for decades, yeah. right? Like so. One of the questions I've always asked people because I study high achievement and people going after the impossible is. What are the things you're proudest of? And by proudest, I mean what made the biggest difference in your life over time, your performance over time, your development as a human being over time. And in two decades of asking this question, not once has somebody said, oh, dude, I, I, I won the lottery, right? Or something like that. What I hear is, oh, yeah, man, I went to night school and work six jobs to feed my family while I went and got a degree in medicine that led me to blah, blah, right? Like those are the stories you hear again and again and again. And everybody wants their kind of trauma story to be exceptional. They, everybody want, right? And as I always point out, like it's hard to hear for everybody. There no, I've met everybody you could possibly meet. I've met presidents, I've met kings. I've come from working class, blue collar background. Like anybody you could possibly meet, I've met. It's hard for everybody. I've never met anybody who's having an easy time here. I just haven't met that person. And if it's, you know, it's hard for everybody is sort of like the foundation, the foundational thing. If that's a crew across the boards and we're all capable of these extraordinary levels of high achievement, and it's going to be hard here anyways, why not go after your dreams? Doesn't there's, I can't see a reason not to. And we know that the things that make us feel most rewarded are the hard things that we go after for years on end. So it turns out that hard work and a, a lot of flow may, you know, be the fountain of youth secret to happiness that we've all been looking for. It may just be that simple, but it's odd, but it might be true. Yeah. Cause I think when people think of, of hard work, they just think of just, just grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding. But I think it's just in the sense it's of smart, hard work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a difference. Hard, there's so there's hard work where God, this is awful, and I'm not getting anywhere. Right? That's awful. That sucks. That's burnout. And then there's right. hard work of, oh wow, this was a challenge, but I won today. And oh, tomorrow's a challenge, but I won tomorrow. And then you look up a couple of years in, and you're like, oh wow, I've written two books, or you know, blah blah blah, mm-hmm. whatever it is that you're going after. Absolutely. And and I I think so many people, like I've said, are going to get a lot out of our conversation. I thoroughly valued and appreciated your time today, Stephen. But one last thing. So people can find out more about you at Stephen Kotler on Instagram, and then they can buy your newest book, The Art of Impossible, wherever books are sold, and then go to passionreview.com to help people cultivate motivation. Anything else that you want to leave people to? Passionrecipe.com, stephenkotler.com will give you, you know, Everything you sort of want to know about any of the 13 books. Flowresearchcollective.com is where to go for anything about flow. If you're interested in training with us 
or anything like that, flowresearch.com is your gateway there. Doug, it was super fun hanging out with you. I got to get out of here, but take care. This was fun. Thanks, Stephen. So you heard, uh, you know, just Stephen and I's conversation. You're going to get a lot out of out of it and the importance of being in flow and finding things that are meaningful to you and cultivating uh, a sense of purpose, a, a sense of passion and, you know, just developing grit in life. And I think it's important, especially with everything that's going on now, that you really take a look at his work and read his newest book, The Art of Impossible, because I think it will provide you the blueprint to help you get motivated, stay motivated, uh, get into flow and become the best version of yourself. And what I want you to do, just like I recommend with a lot of these episodes, is if you got value out of this, if you learned something, take a screenshot, tag Steven, tag myself with a takeaway or something that maybe he said that you know was an aha moment for you, or maybe it was something that he said that kind of enlightened you in a way that you're going to just start doing something tomorrow, or if you're going to start reading his book, whatever it is, we love to hear your feedback. So make sure to tag him and tag myself, and we look forward to hearing from you. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.